The Energy Gang is brought to you by Solar Edge, a global provider of solar inverters and solar panel optimization electronics. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the U.S. residential market, and a top five supplier to the U.S. commercial market. The company is active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit SolarEdge.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. In this episode, a step-by-step guide to becoming a clean energy billionaire. Okay, not really. But we will talk to one of the most successful wind tycoons of all time, Invenergy CEO Michael Polsky, about his bet on the technology before it was the popular thing to do. Then we'll analyze Donald Trump's big energy speech in North Dakota from last week, and we will finish with a look at the latest figures on global renewable energy investment as Asia booms, Europe falls. With me are my regular co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. Catherine's in Washington, D.C. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Great, just got back late last night from Stanford, where it's gorgeous, and I see why people live out there. <laughs> Were you there for an event? I was there for a conference. I'll talk to uh, talk to you guys about it more at the end of the show. Okay, we'll, we'll wait for that. And with us, normally from New York, in San Francisco, fresh off an airplane, is Jigger Shaw. Hey, Jigger, how are you? Doing well. Coffeeed up. Excellent. That's what we need to get this show going. <laughs> so... When we evaluate business strategies on this show, Jigger commonly likes to ask, can the company get to a billion dollars in sales? And a lot of the time, the answer is no. But our guest is one of the rare people in this industry who has achieved that kind of scale and much earlier than anyone else. Michael Polsky is the president and CEO of Invenergy, one of the world's top clean energy developers. The company has nearly 14,000 megawatts of wind, solar, natural gas, and energy storage projects operating or under construction in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Over his 30-year career, Michael was ahead of the curve on both natural gas and wind, building multiple successful pioneering businesses in those sectors. And he joins us today from Chicago to talk about what he foresaw before most others and what he sees as the future of energy. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Stephen. In 1976, you came to the U.S. from Soviet Ukraine with an engineering background and, and a bit of English, and that was a big life change, to say the least. But in 1978, something else happened that changed your life as well. Through a new law called PURPA that year, the U.S. government allowed non-utilities to own power plants for the first time. So how did a Ukrainian engineer end up co-founding an independent power plant business? First of all, I came without any English, just want to clarify. So, <laughs> uh, but, um, and, and it's, it's an interesting question. So I am mechanical engineer. So I study power plants specifically. So when I came to the United States in 1976, I found job at the Bechtel Corporation and then, uh, I went to in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then went to Minnesota working for, at that time was named Brown Bavari, basically in a in a application engineering for gas turbines. So I, I learned gas turbines combined cycles. And then in 1980, I moved to Chicago working for Fluor. 
engineering company. And uh, interestingly enough, my job was uh, managing cogeneration activity at Fluor. At Fluor. So when PURPA passed in 1978, in 1982, I believe Supreme Court ruled that on validity of the law and become actually a law. So at that time I was at Fluor and I started seeing a lot of entrepreneurs really without much energy background start coming to Fluor and asking us to help them to design power plants. They really had no clue what a power plant was, but obviously they understood the business model that they can sell electricity and make some money. So they come into Fluor and ask us, you know, do this, do that. And I was working with these entrepreneurs and I started realize, realizing that, you know, that could be an interesting business here. So in kind of 83, 84 timeline, time frame, I started thinking about, you know, what should I do next? So I went to floor management. I said, you know, guys, instead of designing power plants, it's a better business to own the power plants. So why don't we own these power plants instead of designing for people? But floor management said, not really. We're not interested because we're, gonna, we're going to upset our customers, which are electric utilities, because cogeneration at that time you know, was perceived to be competed with electric utilities. So they said, nah, we're not interested. So when they told me that, I started looking around and thinking, you know what, if they're not interested, maybe I should do something like this. And I started looking for opportunities to really start something on my own in area of owning power plants, particularly coming from Soviet Ukraine, where owning power plants was unthought unthinkable. I thought owning a power plant is such a cool thing to do. And it was basically unthinkable in the U.S. up until that point, too. Was it hard to raise money for this venture? I, I was relatively hard, but, uh, you know, what, what happened was that uh, I, I, I saw an ad in a magazine from a guy who advertised his services in designing power plants. So I called that guy, this gentleman, and I said, listen, uh, let's get together uh, and uh, I got together with him and I said, listen, my, I'd like to start this business, and but I don't have any money. And we had some discussions and he agreed to fund this business, you know, starting of this business. So that's how it's really started. So you later founded SkyGen, which uh, was another independent power producer. He sold to Calpine for $650 million in the year 2000. And then after that, you were looking around for something else to do. And in 2001, you co-founded Invenergy. And this was a company that was set up to initially buy struggling power plants after the collapse of the many independent power producers when natural gas prices rose. But there weren't a ton of plants up for sale at the prices that you wanted. So... So you turned your attention to wind, and wind in 2001 was pretty expensive still. What to you was so promising about that technology at that time? Yeah, actually, when I started in energy, uh, we first looked at gas. And, uh, you know, we thought we're going to really make our mark by buying distressed gas plants. But we quickly realized that buying distress plants without having money it probably would not be a very successful venture. And again, in my guts, I am really a developer. And I started looking 
at that time frame, about 2002, early 2003, is really what is next development opportunity that we as a developers could take advantage of. And as I said, the, the guess, the guess, in the, I mean, the natural guest plants were sort of distressed at that time. And we thought, based on where the world was, that wind is probably be something interesting for, for us to look at. We had a lot of relationship with GE. At that time, GE bought, as you might remember, in a wind business from from Enron. So I called my contact at GE and said, tell me something about wind. Maybe that's something interesting. Maybe that's something we want to get into. And what kind of projects were you developing at first? How big were they? Um, you know, turbine prices were still really expensive. And I remember later on, you started buying up a ton of equipment and just sitting on the equipment before you had even developed the project. Um, were you doing that from the very beginning? I, you know, it, it's interesting that at, in in about 2005, equi- you know, wind, you know, sort of the whole wind business has picked up the demand because natural gas prices start going up. And obviously we had government encouragement and form of production tax credits. So, but there were not that many, many, not much manufacturing capacity in the United States and wind turbines become scarce commodity. So because of our relationship with GE, we were able to secure fairly large, by those standards, orders of turbines. And we bought turbines in anticipations that in anticipation that project will we will be able to develop project to deploy those turbines. So we, yeah, we were buying large, uh, we were placing large orders for turbines with GE in those years. So, so Michael, you know, you and I have known each other for a while, and um, one of the interesting conversations that we had was that you firmly believed um, at the time that we talked about it that RPS standards were really more important for the development of wind than the wind production tax credit. Do you still believe that? Yes, I do. So give me more. I mean, what, why is that? You know, I always thought that the main impediments to deployment of renewable energy was not necessarily the cost. It was the reluctance of electric utilities to buy renewable energy. Now, let me elaborate on this a little bit. So when we started in energy wind, okay, first. And I remember we had this project in Oklahoma, very good wind, and we had turbines and we could produce you know, electricity for less than three cents per kilowatt hour. So I went to Oklahoma Gas Electric, kind of all armed with this information and say, you know what, three cents wind, when you can make, at that time with the gas prices, they, they were five, six cents per kilowatt hour making with gas. And I said, why don't you buy three cents wind? It makes a lot of sense for you. They said, we will not buy from you. I said, what do you mean? I said, he said, why would we buy for, from you and making no money? We'd rather our, run our own plants and make money that way. So really it was sort of, I, I, I kind of knew that, but that was for me another sort of wake up call saying, listen, the issue is not the cost, the issue are the markets. We really did not have an open market in this country to go and sell renewable energy, even if it makes sense, okay? Even if it's competitive. So that's why I always believe from day one that RPS is really the market key for renewable energy, not 
the production tax credits. So, Michael, in the omnibus bill at the end of last year, the production tax credit was uh, phased out over time. And I just wonder how you see this phase out as uh, is it beneficial for the for certainty for business? I, I'd just love to get your sense of it. Um, I, I think, obviously, if you really look at the business in the last five years, we sort of live on this annual renewal and annual uncertainty in a way, business was driven by by expirations because everybody got sort of, okay, let's build something before it expires because we don't know whether they're going to be renewed next time. So this time, first time in my career, in my career in wind, we have probably the longest certainty what's going to happen in the next several years, okay? So that's a good part. I think when the credits are expired, certainly we will see some slowdown here because in certain places it may not be economical, but I don't see we'll, 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 it will bring industry to the standstill. So I wanted to ask you about this contradiction that I hear in the industry and, and get your thoughts on it. And that is we see reports, I'm thinking of the one from Lazard that shows the uh, unsubsidized LCOE of renewable energy is oftentimes competitive with fossil resources, with a variety of fossil resources. And the the wind guys and the solar guys, they all say, you know, we are, com- we are competitive, largely on an unsubsidized basis in many markets. But for example, in the US, when you see the PTC rolled back, you see development slow way down, and you see people support a a continued extension of uh, the PTC last year, even though wind costs have fallen dramatically. So help me understand, if the PTC went away today, do you think wind would be competitive in the U.S.? And is there an inherent contradiction in the wind industry claiming that it is mostly competitive without subsidies, but yet still wanting these subsidies? I think it's a little bit more complicated issue here, and let me let me try to dissect a little bit here. Okay, uh, as we all know, that electricity demand in this country is not really growing. I mean, we more or less at a stable consumption, or even some places even decreasing. So, so really, it's not market growth here is not. In other words, we don't need new generation to supply ex- loads. Okay today or in the near future. Because the, if you look historically in the United States, we added generation to really supply new load, additional load. Now we don't have that phenomena. So when we add renewable energy, we really add it as a displacement to something that already exists. So wind and solar, it really does not compete with a new generation. If, if we would sort of look and say, okay, what if we need more power, what next thing we're going to build? We're going to build wind, we're going to build solar, we'll build gas or coal if we could. You know, my point is that wind is one of the most competitive and solar in some cases, new generation resources. But, we, but we, because we deal with the displacement of existing power plants, which in most cases are fully depreciated, fully paid off, paid for. Basically, we deal only with the variable production cost of those plants against cost of new wind. Then I think, you know, certainly eliminated production tax rate will hurt because, because in some cases it would be more costly to build new wind to displace existing old 
power plant. And that's where the problem is. We're not dealing with a growing market. So market has changed in some way too. So when we say wind is competitive, yeah, if we look at the apples to apples basis, but if we compare wind with uh, or solar with, with already depreciated plant at gas at a record low prices, yeah, it will, it, it will cost more. Uh, Michael, I wanted to ask you, given what you're saying about displacement of generation, that you're also taking a stance on storage. And I'm just wondering how you see storage in the context of your other assets. All right. I, I think so storage is a very interesting technology. I think it's still somewhat misunderstood, the application of storage. And let me tell you, uh, I am I am big fan of storage. I think storage will be next big things in energy in the sense that with storage we can do things that we could not do before i.e particularly you know dealing with the variable resources with a great stability in other words all this issue of intermittency all this issue of grid instability that we had before and problem of absorbing large quantities of renewable energy storage will solve this issue I don't see in the near term storage be a real sort of storage where we shift large amount of production from one hour to another. I don't think it will be economical with with storage. I'm talking with electrical storage, battery storage for some period of time, but certainly for grid stability, for voltage control, sort of call it entry services, storage is already, you know, playing its role right but i guess um i mean i guess what i'm trying to figure out though on both questions is it seems to me michael that what the itc and the ptc and the now storage has done is that we're not properly valuing the customer's contribution right i mean it, it, in my sense is the 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 utilities got too good a deal on wind right i mean when you think about the deals that you did under purpa those contracts were at a much higher price than a lot of these wind contracts were Right. And so my sense is, is that if you if you were able to sign contracts at prices that were more balanced between the customer and the other side, then you could actually include some storage in that price. And you could also um, finance these deals much easier. Right now, we're all held hostage to the tax credit people. I mean, that's true. I mean, you know, certainly in wind nowadays, utility get prices that they never dreamed of. I mean, wind is so at sub three cents per kilowatt hour for for 15 20 years i mean this is uh you know nobody ever thought ever that uh you know you could buy electricity for 20 years without any volatility in price for such period of time so for utilities and obviously their customer it's just an unbelievable deal and uh i i think this is what you brought is very interesting subject you know using the slow prices why wouldn't we use the slow prices to to do something more you know to bring some new technologies and you know i i don't think anybody would suffer if price of wind we set up 25 dollars a megawatt hour will be 26 or 27 and include storage and include some other things that really would make this technology more palatable and and uh 
in, provide even greater benefit instead of sort of search for this rock bottom price that really at the end of the day doesn't do anything for the economy. And we already have seen with the low oil prices, we see completely opposite effect, you know, where we feel, okay, $25 oil is not healthy. Now $50 seems to be much healthier price. So do we really need wind at $22, $23, $24 to make it, to make it economical? You know, or, or we can afford slightly higher price if we include something else with it. Well, this is where I'm and this is where I'm sort of most confused. I mean, you're sitting in Chicago, which is the head, the, the national headquarters for Exelon. Exelon's in you know, big trouble right now because they've um, um, lost uh, the PJM capacity auction for two of their nuclear plants. So they announced today that they're shutting down two of their nuclear plants, which I think, you know, is probably still able to be reversed. But, you know, as part of that deal, they agreed to allow wind projects that they've been blocking for three years um, to come online. I just don't understand why doesn't the utility work logically here? Why don't they just say, look, you know, if you put in storage, um, we'll agree to pay, you know, $36 a megawatt hour. So we'll, we'll pay an extra $10 a megawatt hour if you put in storage and you do this, this, and this. Why don't they just, why don't they just be transparent about what they want? I mean, <clears throat> you know, again, it's a great question, but that's not how the world works here. You know, as I mentioned before, we all operate in a zero-sum environment here, okay? As I mentioned, we have a fixed demand for electricity, and for every megawatt hour wind generates or renewable generates, there's one megawatt hour of something else would be produced. And in this particular case, Exelon is a direct victim of additional renewable production because they can compete with it. Because when you when you bring wind in the system, you bring basically at zero variable cost and Exelon with their nukes have substantial variable cost, okay? So, and in addition, we have gas also that happened to be cheaper than nuclear. So, so Exelon was blocking wind because they wanna protect their nuclear plants. And uh, so they're not really interested in winds, and the only way they might be interested in wind is somehow it would save their nukes. So, you know, they cannot be transparent here because, in a way, it, it affects their business model. So I think you're asking the wrong guy for the wrong thing. So multiple times throughout your career, you made really good bets on emerging sectors that ended up being extraordinarily good for, for growing your business. Um, again, originally it was developing independent power plants, and then it was moving into wind. Thinking about solar and storage and other technologies that may be on the horizon, what is most interesting to you today when you consider future investments? As far as technologies, I think, uh, you know, obviously wind will continue to be a technology in, in many cases. I think solar, I'm, I'm very bullish on solar because of continuous cost reduction and, and, and simplicity, simplicity and scalability. Obviously, what solar can do, wind cannot, is to really, you know, scale it small. You know, wind, you have to have large wind parks in order to be economical and competitive here. And solar, you can put on the rooftop and you can be, you know, relatively low cost producer. So it's very exciting about solar and storage. Again, I, I have, I think storage is going to be huge because what storage would allow us to do what we couldn't do before. In other words, balancing controls, 
you know, micro, mini grids, you know, distributed generation, all that stuff that that we sort of, you know, was sort of our dream and theories now could become real logically doable because of storage can in, help to integrate everything much more seamlessly than we could before. And are you making uh, moves into those sectors with the same kind of gusto that you did in wind in 2001 before a lot of other people were, were doing that? Yeah, we, we are. As a matter of fact, Invenergy now is one of the largest storage companies in the United States. We have 73 megawatts of storage already operating, and we're looking for some additional projects. Uh, so we're really uh, moving into storage. We are in the storage. Um, as far as uh, you know, other types, we, we're more in a central generation. Uh, we call it utility scale than... Uh, than in distributed because it's it's really two different business models and sometimes you just have to, to have two different companies executing on two different models. Although we we continuously looking at at what it may do for us as a company. So uh, I can't tell you exactly how what we'll do next year. I always say that in our business the most interesting part if you look six months back you wouldn't ever believe that you'd be there now today. So it's uh, it's a business where, where, you know, you're completely being surprised after six months. So every six months, I would say. Yeah, I was just going to say that we talked last week on the show about MGM deciding to leave NV Energy for, for, for consumer choice reasons. And I'm just wondering, you know, now that consumers are saying we want to purchase more renewables, if this is not just opening up a whole host of additional opportunities for you all. Absolutely. And, and I, I think now consumers suddenly start to realize, you know, that they have more power. They never had that power before to go and demand things, okay? And uh, and particularly with renewable energy, it, it provides consumer choices that they had not had before, did not have before. So, for example, before, if consumer wants something, they had to go to that same central power plant and utility owns. Now they can go to multiple suppliers of wind, of solar, and 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 buy whatever they want. And so there are willing sellers now and, and willing buyers out there. And also, I think what consumers realize that this sort of myth that renewable energy costs more, in other words, they have to somehow pay a premium for that they also realize that is not true. And 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 one more thing I might I might add for you, they also realize advantage of fixed cost. In other words, before historical models, utility models were that, you know, I'll pass whatever cost I have, I'll pass to you. So if gas prices are going up, if something happened, you know, you know, that's yeah, you know, I'm gonna increase my cost and pass it to you. And, and people realize with renewable energy, particularly the consumer itself, you know, utility just pass costs through. For them, it doesn't matter. But for consumer, having a fixed cost supply where where they can get for 20 years power at the same cost, you know, today as, as you know, 15 years from now, it's, it's huge. It's huge advantage that they never had it before. So for them, it's also, you know, just a common sense that the... We all, as consumer, put put more premium on a fixed cost rather than a variable cost that we don't know about. It's a really compelling trend, and uh, we talked a lot about that last week. 
and something that I think will will boost companies like Invenergy further. I know that you signed a big contract with Google to, to directly supply them wind electricity, and so many other big corporations are doing the same with, uh, by investing directly in wind and solar power plants. So we'll be excited to see how Invenergy evolves. Uh, Michael Polsky is the president and CEO of Invenergy, and he joined us from the company's headquarters in Chicago. Michael, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Okay, let's take a second here before we move on to talk about our new sponsor, Solar Edge. Solar PV systems aren't just made up of a bunch of silicon, glass, and metal. They now have brains. And Solar Edge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smart. Solar Edge's insight was to see that a PV system is more than just a solar module. It is an architecture of smart modules, inverters, monitoring, and now also batteries and home load management devices. What's the secret to adding intelligence to all these systems? The inverter, of course. On the horizon is a future where the smart solar edge inverter controls the smart home, connected to the grid or to the cloud, that guides energy production, storage, and even your appliances. That future is happening. Smart PV systems were just the start. The next step is the smart home and storage. To find out more about the future of energy, visit SolarEdge.com. On to Donald Trump now. Oh, Lord, Donald Trump. Trump bills himself as the anti-establishment Republican, but in a Trump-like speech last week on energy policy, the presidential candidate sounded like he was reading from the campaign playbook of Mitt Romney in 2012, with his own personal twist, of course. Here's a clip. We're going to lift moratoriums on energy production in federal areas. We're going to revoke policies that impose unwarranted restrictions on new drilling technologies. We're going to cancel the Paris Climate Agreement and stop. Unbelievable. And stop all payments of the United States tax dollars to UN global warming programs. There's one more thing we must do to make America wealthy again. And you have to be wealthy in order to be great. I'm sorry to say it. Build the wall. We'll build the wall. We'll build the wall. Believe me. We're going to build the wall. Trump talked for about 45 minutes, occasionally peppering in comments like that one you just heard about the wall. He touched on oil and gas drilling, energy independence, the Paris, the Paris climate deal, and carbon regulations. It was the first time he laid out any tangible ideas on energy, so it is our duty to cover them. Before we start, I just wanted to say a few thoughts on his policy proposals generally, because I've struggled with how to talk about Trump. So I'll be clear. I think the man is completely dangerous. He's run a vile, racist, sexist campaign. He is a demagogue of the highest order. He's bordering on authoritarian. And he clearly has a severe narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, Bob, Bob Garfield, one of my favorite media critics, put it recently, he put it really well. He said, asking Trump about his policy proposals is like asking Charles Manson about his driving record. And we need to continue to call him out for what he is. And we need to be careful about giving his flimsy policy proposals an air of legitimacy and rather focused, continue to focus on you know, the loathsome values that have propelled his campaign. So I just don't think we can fall victim to false balance here. I just wanted to get that out of the way. I've been thinking about it a lot, but I also don't think we can ignore him because it's important to talk about this energy speech. People are listening to him. He spoke in front of thousands. So it is our duty to also talk about these proposals. 
Catherine, do you think we know anything more about Trump, about his energy, his energy proposals after this speech than we did before the speech? Stephen, we just have to make energy great again. <laughs> and and by energy, I mean fossil fuels, because coal miners love going after coal. Um, we're going to just it's just going to fly up out of the ground and cover the world and make everybody rich. So, yeah, the the, the policies were really taken mostly from someone he considers an energy policy expert who's Kevin Kramer, um, House Republican uh, in the House of you know, House of Representatives from North Dakota, who has a 1% LCV score. So he's certainly not considered a green guy. But this guy has really been writing some of his policy proposals. That said, I don't know that Trump really reads them or understands them. He's sort of reciting them without any kind of context. He certainly does not understand that energy is a global market. Um, he doesn't understand that what he says would do damage. I just don't think he understands energy at all. Uh, you, you know, he was making comments like, you know, wind energy kills hundreds and hundreds of eagles. And, you know, he's off by orders of magnitude. I mean, wind is responsible for 5% of human caused eagle deaths. And he says things like, I love farmers. Well, 86% of wind turbines are on private land leased by ranchers and farmers. So it's it's not fact-based. Um, I'm but shocked. Nothing, nothing that he says is, and yet it still doesn't seem to impact his supporters. Yeah, I think that's what's so baffling about this. But Going through each of these one by one, when you look at the facts, you mentioned the eagle and the wind power one. He talked about how it was Obama's fault that we saw drilling rigs fall. But of course, we know it's uh, low oil and gas prices that have caused drillers to stop operations and drilling rig operations to fall. Uh, He talked about energy independence as if somehow the United States could wall itself off, pun intended, uh, from the rest of the world forgetting that energy is a global market. He discussed the Paris climate deal and seemed to think that the U.S. was, uh, U.S. policy was getting dictated by other countries. And in reality, what we saw in Paris last year was that these were voluntary agreements. The U.S. is not necessarily bound to them and other countries nor the U.N. are not dictating our policy here. Again, voluntary commitments put forward by the Obama administration. And he, he basically argued that the bureaucrats at the U.N. would be able to come in and dictate what Congress does or doesn't do. So he was just completely out of touch on all those issues. Yeah, and folks globally are really worried about this. Um, oh, pe- yeah. People who work in the energy industry are really, really worried. I, I reached out to someone who is a Trump supporter who also works on solar, and that is Debbie Dooley. She's been on our show. She's in the Green Tea Party. And I said to her, so, <laughs> you know, what, what are you talking to Trump about? Are you letting him know the, the message on solar? And she says, you know, part of the message, he's staying right on. We have to pursue all forms of energy, um, including renewables and technology of the future. We shouldn't exclude anything. She has been trying to get info to the Trump campaign for the last four months, but she's not sure if it's actually reached the people that need to get it. I don't know how many people there are there. Not very many. Um, But her plans are to do some news interviews, stay on her messaging, which is, you know, liberty and solar, um, and to influence public policy. So she's, she's running for delegate to the Republican National Convention to get her message out. Jigger, you got any thoughts? Yeah, so um, last week there was a great episode on Bill Maher um, where he brought on Dilbert creator Scott Adams. 
who basically said, and, and Scott Adams is, um, you know, not only a great cartoonist, but also um, is a trained hypnotist, and basically says that, you know, this is just out of the playbook of hypnosis and, you know, the power of persuasion, right? Donald Trump does exactly what you're supposed to do to take control of an audience and figure all these things out. So the fact he doesn't know anything about energy or frankly doesn't know anything about immigration or doesn't know anything about trade, that's not his craft, right? The, the guy is basically the personification of Barnum and Bailey. Um, and so I, I don't, you know, I don't think taking what he says seriously makes any sense. I mean, he basically is saying whatever he has to say to get 20% of the population to back him. I completely agree there. And that's why I wanted to be careful up front in saying that I don't want to take his policy proposals too seriously. But I'm taking them seriously enough for a couple of reasons. One, because they do reflect what the broader Republican Party is telling him. And very clearly, the same talking points that they gave to Mitt Romney in 2012, they're giving to Donald Trump. And uh, I think, assuming we hear him talk about energy more, though that's a reflection of how the GOP is still thinking about these issues. So I think that's really important. Um, also, people in the energy sector are listening to him. If you look at a lot of the coverage, people in North Dakota, there were a lot of Trump supporters there who worked in the oil and gas industry and in the coal industry and felt very moved by what he said, despite his inability to grasp the real market forces behind his policy proposals. So I, I, I do think that there are a couple reasons to pay attention to them, but I do agree that we, we shouldn't take them too seriously. Well, also, there's one more reason, which is that he could actually be the president. I mean, I we're we're probably hopeful that he's not, but he could be. And this is why it is really, really important that we have civilian employees in in agencies and national laboratories that continue to do the hard work that they're doing now, regardless of who's the president, regardless of what the politicals are, the top are saying. But having our civilian employees continue to do hard work and research is going to be critical. Yeah, but I mean, but I said this in a previous podcast. Look, I don't want him to be president, let's be clear. But even if he did become president, I don't think the guy actually has an opinion to save his life. And so I think, you know, if if, you know, like last, um, the most underreported story two months ago was that the U.S. Census Bureau came out with its study on jobs and said that the number one fastest growing job in the United States is wind energy technician, which is great. And I'm sure that somebody in the Trump White House would look at that and go, actually, I'm pro-wind. I mean, it, I, I just find that, like, when you think about all this stuff, Dick Cheney was a devil incarnate, but it was actually George Bush who really presided over this solar boom, right? I mean, he's the one who gave us the eight-year extension in 2008. It wasn't Obama. And so I just think that this notion that like Trump is going to come in and actually reverse all the gains that the wind and solar industry has done or reverse the fortunes of coal is laughable on its face. The coal industry is all bankrupt because they overpaid for met coal. Um, it's sort of what it is. I, I don't, I mean, the fact that his poly positions are so divorced from the facts also gives me comfort from the fact that, you know, the markets are going to move forward without him. Yeah, I think that would be the case with uh, anybody who came in with an anti-renewables platform. There's a lot already in the works uh, on the political level, locally in, in the states, and just in terms of market forces that would prevent a president from reversing a lot of the progress that's been made. 
So let's talk about the progress on the international level very quickly before we wrap up the show. A couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation about global solar market dynamics, which are constantly in flux. And and now we're going to step back and take a look at all renewables. This week, REN21 released its report on international investments in renewables, finding that $285.9 billion was invested across all sectors last year. The trends that guided 2014 were even more pronounced in 2015. EU investment keeps falling. Asian investment keeps expanding, and developing countries generally are becoming more dominant players. Let's talk briefly about these trends. Jager, developing countries continue to outpace the rich ones in renewables investment. Is this balance here to stay? Yeah, I think so. And this goes to what Michael was saying about the competitiveness of solar and wind. I think that developing countries don't have the luxury of saying, we're going to build really expensive power plants just because we want to. Um, they're going to go where the money is. And right now there's a ton of money in renewable energy and all of that money wants to invest in India and Brazil and other places. And has said to them, here are the five rules that we need you to implement to be able to, you know, invest in your country. And India and Brazil are saying, great, if you're going to bring a hundred billion dollars over, we'll change these five rules to, to bring you in. And I mean, that's where we are. I think at the time at which it was feed in tariffs and it was more expensive and all that stuff. Um, you know, they were very hesitant to change those rules. Now they're embracing them whole hog. Yeah, and the biggest investors, I, I spoke to a friend of mine who's an investor in Berlin, he said are Statoil, Vattenfall, Total, even Eon and RWE are making big changes and shifting toward what they think are better investments, which are in renewables, especially in wind. Definitely. And we have to understand what's going on behind these figures. In countries like the UK and in Germany, we've seen pretty massive subsidy rollbacks, which have contributed to the decline in investment numbers. But uh, in general, we also have seen pretty dramatic declines in the cost of developing projects. So that contributes to the decline as well. Um, In China also, which is, of course, the leader you, you don't really know what's going on with a lot of these projects. We see massive curtailment, long interconnection queues, um, problems with getting subsidies from the regional or, or national government. So China's a bit of a black box, and I think it's really hard to understand what's going on behind those overall investment numbers. Clearly, it's important to remember that an increase isn't always good, and a decrease doesn't always mean that investment in project development is falling radically? Well, I think an increase is always good. A decrease is not necessarily bad because, you know, the cost reductions of solar and wind. But, and so, I mean, that's what I would say about Europe. I think this notion that Europe is, um, you know, uh, falling out of love with renewables, which was the headline that Bloomberg ran on this story, doesn't make any sense. I mean, Europe's total investment in renewable energy is still on par with the United States. Um, which are very similar regions economically. So I think Europe is just coming down from its over-exuberance on renewables to something more healthy in terms of its investment criteria, which can be afforded by its people. Well, since we had a detailed conversation about solar market dynamics last week, and largely the same forces are at play here, I think that's enough. Um, the numbers continue to climb. They'll likely climb again this year, and we'll probably cover them again later in the year. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know now. Catherine, what is your story this week? 
Yeah, so I spent a wonderful two days at Stanford at the C3E Women in Clean Energy Symposium. There were 280 women, and I, I would say there were a couple of guys thrown in there too, uh, Ernie Moniz being one of those guys. Um, and we awarded awards um, to eight women in different areas and, and a Lifetime Achievement Award. And the Lifetime Achievement Award went to Sarah Kurtz, who's a longtime research fellow and co-director at NREL at the National Center for Photovoltaics. Um, and she joins previous winners who include Mary Nichols, Sue Tierney, Maxine Savitz, and Mildred Dresselhaus. So it's a it's an incredible line of um, achievement honorees. Super impressive lineup of names. Thanks for sharing that. Jigger, what do you got this week? So I have been very critical of particularly Democrats who always say that they're pro renewable energy, but yeah, but don't actually pass hundred percent goals. Because um, I do think that we have to get to 100% renewable energy or 100% zero carbon by 2050. And um, I was proud to see that the New York State Assembly, which is not the Senate, but just the Assembly, um, approved a climate bill that would cut emissions to zero, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and I would love to see Jay Inslee try to match that in Washington State. Now, it's not the law of New York yet, but I do think that that's where we need to go. I do think, and, and the other thing I would say as a companion to that is now that Bill McKibben is on that committee with the DNC to help write the party platform. You know, I'd like to see it become the party platform of, you know, the DNC to adopt Martin O'Malley's uh, pledge to be 100% fossil fuel free by 2050. I do think that that we need to go that far. The news coming out of New York just keeps on coming. It's hard to keep up with it all. Speaking of keeping up with a lot of stuff, our GTM research team has been really active and we have a few new reports this week with some good stats coming out. We have a report on PV pricing, forecasting and breakdowns, and uh, the pricing for fixed tilt ground mount PV systems is going to hit 99 cents a watt by 2020, which would uh, surpass the Department of Energy's ambitious sunshot target of a buck a watt by the end of the decade. Also, we have a report on microgrid capacity, and we foresee a 30% increase in microgrid capacity by 2020. And finally, our U.S. Energy Storage Monitor is out, and deployments last year were up 127% year over year. That's, of course, coming from a small base, but incredible growth still. So behind the meter systems are starting to catch up with large-scale storage and by 2017 or 2018 behind the meter systems might actually surpass uh, in front of the meter large-scale systems which is an interesting trend so that's it for the show thank you for listening a big thanks to solar edge for sponsoring the show find out more about their smart inverters at solaredge.com you can listen to all our episodes at greentechmedia.com and subscribe to us on itunes soundcloud stitcher or any podcast app of your choice you can also find us on npr1 as always feel free to email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com with jigger shah and Catherine hamilton i am stephen lacy and we are the energy gang a production of greentechmedia.com Thank you.